back in, everybody. My name is Akira the Don, artist, wave lord, architect of the Meaning Wave universe. Meaning Wave being a psycho technology and musical story that I created in order to assist people uh, with achieving their potential in this lifetime. And uh, yeah, that's that. An invite from someone. We've got someone very special coming in today. And we are here today because uh, we've got a brand new album. This is actually the second album uh, that we've done. Uh, I've taken the audio, uh, the vocal audio from Naval's famous How to Get Rich tweet storm uh, spoken thing. And I actually, uh, when I first read that, I was like, holy shit, this, I need to turn this into a record. And at that point, it had not been spoken. And, um, yeah, and I remember hitting up Naval and saying, hey, could you record this? It would be a really good album. But um, anyway, I, I would rather talk about that with Naval uh, than without. Uh, and I believe Naval is here. Uh, hi, Naval. How are you? Thanks for doing <laughs> the cool. album. <laughs> the ultimate yeah. form of leverage is, uh, is doing nothing and having other people spread your content around in new forms. So thanks for the free leverage. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it goes both ways, right? It's kind of amazing uh, how that happens. Uh, exactly. Do you remember, do you remember that uh, when, I can't remember exactly how first I approached you to do a record, and I can't remember if it, it was that instant. Uh, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't remember, honestly. I, I, I originally, I did the tweet storm, which was sort of a, how should I say, it, it, was, it was like a very quick off-the-cuff thing. Uh, it was a very spontaneous really? thing. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about it for a while, and uh, I had a few notes scattered here and there, but I do that a lot. So I have tons of tweet storms and things that are just right in a huge notepad to myself that never make it out into the world, the vast majority. And this was, and there were a couple of snippets lying around. <laughs> Uh, and then I was feeling this, uh, I don't know, I, 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 you know, one of the things that I've said in, is that inspiration was perishable, act on it immediately. Actually, I could play it. I mean, it's a great record. Yeah, sure. Inspiration is perishable. When you have your inspiration, do it right then and there. Inspiration is perishable. When you have your inspiration, do it right then and there. 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 Right then and there. Do it right then and there. Yeah, that, that's the podcast. Right, that's a pod. That's a podcast version. My tweet version is a little different, which is more compact so, because you know on Twitter every word counts. And uh, mm. so on Twitter, I said inspiration is perishable. Act on it immediately. And so I, I try to follow that. I also do the opposite, which is if I'm not inspired, just don't do it. Uh, and so yeah. I wasn't inspired. So I wasn't inspired because these little snippets were floating around my head and they weren't coherent. Uh, and then. One night I went to bed and I'd been thinking about it before I went to bed and I woke up at three in the morning and it was just the whole thing was in my head <laughs> and, I, and I hammered it out on my iPad while sitting in bed and then I went back to bed. <laughs> so that was it. And, and so I had a feeling sort of that. Yeah, I was inspired, so I did it. Uh, but I think the, the imp equally important corollary was when I wasn't inspired, I didn't do it. And uh, yeah. I, I had to wait for the inspiration. And I would say when I look back at all the best writing I've ever done, it was it followed that exact pattern. Yeah, it's exactly the same with me and uh, records. It was pretty, It was the same with the, the first... The f I remembered it now. The first thing I did with your voice was I heard you on uh, Tim Ferriss 
And uh, you were talking really excitedly about like reading, <laughs> the joy of reading and uh, habits. And uh, I was walking around Los Angeles just uh, doing some errands and I had that one and I literally had to like run home and make it into a record pretty much straight away. Uh, and I think I'd laid out that whole first Naval Wave mixtape in a couple of hours. Uh, like the whole yeah, in, shape. A, in a way, one one of the huge advantages of these modern tools that we have is that we can just do things when we're inspired, as opposed to when we have to schedule them and, and prep them. So it is a golden yeah. age of creativity. Uh, like one of the more unpopular tweets I think I put out a long time back. I forget the exact verbiage, but it was something like, "We're living in the golden era of art. We just don't notice it <laughs> because there's too much abundance." Uh, like, you know, we have a tendency to go back and look at art from older times to be like, oh, that was real art. No, there's probably more amazing art being created today than at any other point in history. It's just buried, it's drowned because there's a very high, there's a very low signal to noise ratio. There's a, it's just so easy to create art that there's just a lot more of being created. So finding the so-called good stuff is much harder. But that's okay. You know, people also don't necessarily have to agree on what's good and what's not. Although I, I, I do believe that there is some objective basis to beauty. Um, but nevertheless, we don't all have to agree upon what you know, if access at a given time. So different people may disagree. There might not be a convergence on a singer, single person like a Mozart or a Beethoven in their time. But uh, at the same time, I do think that we are living in the golden era of art, thanks to all the tools that we have. Those things tend to be viewed in hindsight anyway. It's like, you know, most, exactly. most of the sort of exactly. artists that you hear about were starving in their lifetime or died destitute or whatever. Even like, even the... Yeah, it's, like it's, it's one of the ways I... I yeah, it's one of the ways I know in which I'm not very good because because I'm I'm popular in my own time. <laughs> so that that <laughs> well, right there says that I'm, I'm not now. saying. Yeah. This is what is different now, though, because as you were saying back in the day, maybe there were there well, obviously there were people creating beautiful things, but most people never got to experience them because they were far too busy digging holes to poop in or whatever it was. <laughs> exactly. You know, uh, people weren't weren't witnessing all this wonderful art. People used to go. I remember realizing the point of stained glass windows. Is because there was you couldn't see color anywhere else. So the churches yeah. would put that stained glass in, and people would go there just to look at that. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it, we didn't used to have uh, the spread of creativity and information at the rate that we do today. So obviously, it is easier for someone to be good and famous in their own time. At the same time, there's another subtlety, which is. I think people who are really uh, good writers, they, they write the truth and the truth is often socially unacceptable within their time. <laughs> and it's only, yeah, it's only 50 or hundred years later when like the sting of it is taken out that people can look back on it more objectively. Uh, the other thing is that uh, it's, it's nature of a writer to just be kind of trapped in their own time. Like they make references to their politics and to, uh, you know, their uh, preferences and so that's inevitably going to be polarizing to someone who has different politics and preferences. But if you're yep. reading someone from hundreds of years ago, none of it makes sense. None of the politics or preferences matter anymore. You're just looking at the underlying lasting content. So it, I, I mean, it's even as close as like in, 20 or 30. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because like I mean, politics in some sense, yeah, these are fashion and facts yeah. and they come and go. And yeah. actors and things of that nature. I was listening to uh, Earl Nightingale recently. And uh, none of his references, I didn't know who any of them were, pretty much. You know, and he was, he was talking in the 50s. Yeah, one of the interesting things also is certain mediums, I think, uh, or certain kinds of media age better than others. Like, you could have made an amazing movie, but there's just a whole generation of people who won't watch it because it's black and white. Or, no. you know, you, you, made it, you made the best silent action movie ever, but how many people are going to see it later on? 
So the more you get to just pure distilled information, just words, uh, the, the more likely it is that your message will spread. So I do think, for example, an archive <laughs> podcast or an archive text uh, or archive music have much longer range reach than, say, uh, video. Right? Video content is not as timeless. It will, it will, yeah, it will very, appear very much dated. So. Almost, almost yeah. instantly, weirdly, especially with the, with the speed at which culture is, is rampaging currently. You can literally look at stuff from a couple of years ago and it looks strange and, uh, and discordant. Uh, this is why I very specifically make, I very rarely edit anything anybody says in my songs. But uh, for example, the Scott Adams record I did, I removed any references to contemporary politicians or human beings because the message of what he was talking about in that record, which was, as he described, the, inter the user interface for reality, was a timeless message. But the second you attach contemporary events or people to it, like you were saying, not only can it date it horribly, it can create uh, associations with people which, which hinder the usefulness. Yeah, some, uh, some while back... Um I forget. Maybe when Clubhouse really started getting underway, I stopped tweeting for a while. And it wasn't a deliberate thing. It was just I was less interested in Twitter because now I could say things in context in Clubhouse as opposed to context-free in Twitter. And mm. uh, I, what was interesting was I would go check the mentions occasionally, and I, my <laughs> account was growing just as fast uh, as, as it was before, <laughs> if not faster. There were more mentions. There were more people talking. There were more people finding the content. And I think the reason is because the content was created to be relatively timeless, so it can keep spreading. An account that's talking about politics has to just continue putting out political content because it goes stale almost the instant that it's out. You know, all the news yeah. journalists who think they're building followings, they're not. They're, they're, yeah, they're building followings as long as they continue to work. So basically, if you're building a following based on politics or journalism or timely things, you're renting out your time. What you're doing is you're, you're yes, you're exactly. getting a higher and higher hourly rate, but you're still renting out your time. But if you're creating timeless content, then you have compounding principles. You're no longer renting your time. It's all leveraged. But it, it built, wasn't so yeah. deliberate. It was just accidental because I'm just not interested in as much in contemporary things. No, well, all that stuff is boring. And it's very much like building your house on quicksand. Uh, it's the, the, the speed with which it becomes irrelevant. I often find myself returning to Amuse Chimp's Twitter. Uh, that is still my favorite Twitter account of all time. I used to think that was you. Oh, for a while, I just thought, oh, that, that's, I that's wish Nevada's, I wish that that's was Nevada's no. Uh, no, I, I return to that, that like, at least once a month or something. And there's he no, did, you know, you it's entirely relevant. He, he did contact me uh, on Twitter long after retirement, like years after really? his disappearance. Yeah, and he sent me a couple of his draft tweets. Uh, really? But you know, it, it, yeah, it's 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 one it's one of those things though that sort of destroys the magic for you. It's like if a magician shows up and starts showing you like all the little parts and pieces that he used for his tricks, uh, it takes away uh, more than it adds. So I skimmed him, and nothing jumped out. But it was because he put ten or fifteen of them together in a you know in a string, and they weren't his best work, but they were still good work. Work. Oh, no. Amused chimp, I think, to me was the the peak of Twitter. I haven't yeah. seen anything as good since. I, that was the point when I would literally tell people, oh, Twitter's really good because, yeah, there's a load of morons on there, but you can ignore them and you can just not follow them, right? And you can mute certain things if you wish to. But there's wonderful things like this amused chimp. I would use that as a reason for people to go on Twitter. I can't think of a reason to get people to go on Twitter these days. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, there's a few life. accounts that I really enjoy, like, you know, yeah. Morgan House, Housel is, is one of them and uh, 
I don't know. I, I, there's there's quite a few accounts that I still enjoy. There's this one, Ascendant Power, Fit Founder. There's a bunch of others I follow, but it, it not, I don't follow in the traditional sense. I follow on lists. Um, there is great stuff on there. It's just very. It's it's just increasingly difficult to weed out the noise, even when you do smart oh, yeah, things yeah, yeah. like set your location yes. to Tokyo, which I do, so I don't have to look at trending topics. Well, Twitter uh, Twitter trending topics is utter trash. I mean, it's like a campus I wouldn't know. High school. I just see Japanese. All I see is Japanese. <laughs> That's smart. It's beautiful. Uh, I, I see a high school newspaper, you know, written by some very angry sociology ma- major. <laughs> it's kind of what, is what I see. It's yeah. awful. It, it it makes me want to puke. Like, yeah, I can't. I wait used to have a thing in um, Twitter. Yeah, well, yeah, I used to have a thing in the UK. I don't live in the UK anymore, but in the UK, it's impossible to avoid the newsstand. Everywhere you go, there's a newsstand, and it's just blaring its horror and pornography of whatever. And one of the things I loved about America was you didn't see these newsstands everywhere and you could kind of walk around and, and avoid that whole side of life. If you weren't deliberately watching television, you could avoid that. And then it started to sneak in via social media around 2013. Uh, and once again, became difficult to avoid. So like, I feel like a, a large part of my life is this constant trying to kind of create systems to stop this stuff entering my world. Well, you can't because politics is about power and now everything has become politicized because people are trying to seize power in every part of uh, every domain, right? So all the classic institutions are up for grabs. The internet is causing big power shifts and everybody wants power. So they're trying to redefine everything from, you know, how uh, society is run and should work and, you know, what mathematics is and what's settled science and not and all those (laughs) kinds of things, right? These are all, these are all power grabs. COVID was a giant power struggle, right? You can see the winners versus the losers very clearly. Mm -hmm. Um, And so so everything, unfortunately, everything has become politicized and it's, you you can't hide from politics anymore because at some level politics finds you, right? Like if you're in, if you're in a country that's undergoing a revolution, eventually they'll come door to door and with guns. So you can't hide from it forever, but it, it is, it is awful. I mean, you can definitely not exacerbate the situation, right? You, and I think at some level, the way to sort of, as, as a good civil member of society, stand up to these people is to be intolerant of the intolerant. And I define intolerant people as the ones who want to suppress speech and control other people. So that, mm-hmm. that to me is how you identify the intolerant people. They tell you what you can't say. They'll punish you for, they, they punish you for your speech because they can't punish you for your thoughts, right? Really, they want to control your thoughts. And so to me, the intolerant are the people People who are trying to censor your speech and these are the people who have to be resisted with all of your might if you want civil society to continue to exist because the moment an authoritarian gets hold of uh, the censorship capability whether it's for a quote-unquote good or evil they all think they're acting for good then they essentially take over society and lead to stagnation and, and repression um, so yeah. where i do get political is on defending the first amendment i think that is you know the core of the american experiment and I, I am pro Second Amendment, not in the sense that I own a gun. Uh, I, you know, I don't grow up with that hunting culture, and I don't want to live in an urban environment full of guns. But on the other hand, I understand what <laughs> happens uh, to societies over a long period of time where you disarm the population. You just have too high of a catastrophic failure risk of some dictator seizing power. Uh, and people who yep. say, well, you can't fight tanks and, and airplanes just have no idea how, how civil wars and military history and guerrilla warfare works. It's just complete ignorance. But that's what you get from non-gun owners, <laughs> right? They don't actually understand how <laughs> violence works. And, and, and no matter how you may want to paint society as this beautiful collection of voters who are voting their preferences, ultimately everything is backed up by violence, everything. Uh, so if you, if you don't see the person with a gun in charge, you just haven't looked closely enough. 
Um, there's always someone with a gun in charge, and you cannot disenfranchise the people who have the means of violence in, a, in any society for very long, because eventually they just take over. You know, the, it's like in Rome, when the, there was a Praetorian Guard that used to protect the emperors, because it was it just became a very warlike society, and the emperors had to be protected by their guards. Well, no surprise, the last bunch of emperors were all former Praetorian Guards, uh, just like today. In Soviet Russia, not Soviet, it's not Soviet Russia, but you know whatever Russia is, it's all run by ex-KGB and ex-FSB. It's all run by ex. So you could see that happen in the United States. Mm. You give these people too much power to censor what other people think and and say. You give them the power to control the media and the speech apparatus, and you will end up with former CIA and FBI officials in charge eventually of the whole country. It'll be the same thing. So I, I do believe. I mean, it that started here a while ago with George Bush. It has. It has quite explicitly, and it has, like explicitly, and it, has, and it has continued, and it has continued in every administration, Republican or Democrat. It's just gotten worse. Uh, so mm. uh, I don't think Bush alone was to blame. I, although I think the Patriot Act was awful. Let's see what the you know the COVID reactions also create in terms of more of a surveillance state. Um, but you know now you have things like modern monetary theory and uh, and calls for censorship <laughs> being paddled around. I mean these are just complete nonsense, like failure of basic mathematics and, and civics. Um, but I, I do fear that the uh, the Enlightenment experiment, the Enlightenment era values uh, of reason and debate and logic and science and testability and and free speech are very much under attack. Uh, and oh, yeah. you know it would be it would be sad for us if the, those were extinguished because we would we would actually enter uh, secular stagnation. Um, we don't we don't need another Russia, right? The United States is unique. Uh, it, we don't need we actually don't even need another Europe. Europe is, is has been very much on the, you know, at least parts of it has been very much in the decline for a long time. Okay. Uh, so the United States is kind of a uniquely unique experiment in freedom with both political freedoms and economic freedoms and social freedoms. You don't you don't find that combination elsewhere in the world as much. Um, you know, it's hard to, I don't know of any other place in the world where you have free speech enshrined in the constitution, plus you have the right to bear arms, plus you have 50 different states they can move around on, plus the powers that are not enumerated, uh, you know, to the government are left to the people. So th those kinds of uh, strong freedoms just don't exist anywhere else in the world. And that's why it's such a beacon for immigration, because people want to get here, because it's free. It's free to experiment, it's free to do new things. But it, it seems that those freedoms are under attack, and ironically, from a just There's a reason you and I both came here. We're both immigrants. We both came here. Uh, we both uh, did well here. Uh, I'm earlier in my stage than you. And it is really, really uh, tragic that, that the things that make it so uh, valuable, appealing, uh, useful in the world context are the things that are under attack. And I'm seeing all over the place, like people like, okay, so where do we go now? And there isn't. Where do you go? Now? There is nowhere else. Yeah, there's nowhere else to go. Uh, Nassim yeah. Taleb had a had a had a really good observation in his Skin in the Game book where he talks about the the minority rule, and where he points out it's not majorities that run the world; it's intolerant minorities because yeah. the centrists just want to get along. They don't want to make trouble. So if you yeah. have intolerant minorities, will become hysterical, scream, shout, call you names, you know, uh, try and cancel you. Then you have no. Then the, the centrists just kind of get go along, and then these intolerant minorities. Will pick off individuals one at a time, 
uh, and the internet makes that easier than ever by forming flash mobs and then they cancel people and the rest of the people get cowed into silence and there's just you know they can't even say certain things you're not even allowed there, there are basic parts of biology you are no longer allowed to discuss or you will get canceled uh, which is insane right that's a science yeah. and it needs to be free to explore the science uh, and so you can kind of just see this creeping uh, invasion, this, this, this fungus of the social sciences, which is destroying the natural sciences. The natural sciences normally take their feedback from nature, from reality. Um, the economic sciences normally take their feedback from free markets. The social sciences, unfortunately, take their feedback from <laughs> society. So they're basically just voting. They're just, a, they're just politics by another name. So if you're getting a degree in social science, I, I, I'm sorry to tell you that you're just getting a degree in politics, which is probably a pretty worthless degree, except in a world that's run entirely by politics, which is not a world you want to live in because it's a pretty destitute no. society. So unfortunately, We've read lots social- of books about that world. Yes, exactly. And these social sciences are unfortunately now this creeping fungus that is destroying the natural sciences and, and has already corrupted the economic sciences to a huge degree and is uh, busy corrupting the the natural sciences. So to the point where in economics, you can safely dismiss macroeconomics. It's all just been taken over. So there's very, it's very hard to find the truth in macroeconomics. It's just politics with a lot of math. Um, and when you get into the natural sciences, you can see the further removed you are from pure mathematics, the, the more it's under attack. But they're going to get all the way up the chain eventually. And it's interesting, as, as just as this is happening, a possible solution or other way emerges in the form of blockchain, right? Yeah, it's not, it's not just crypto, but I would, I would more broadly characterize it as the Internet. Um, internet someone very yeah, intelligent. Next Internet. Yeah, someone, yeah, someone very intelligently just uh, a long time ago said that uh, the internet views censorship as damage and routes around it. So that's really mm-hmm. interesting, right? The, the internet is a neural network of, of sorts, and in a neural network, you're just trying to transmit information the most, uh, the, the most clearly. And when something gets censored, if it gets blocked, like information can travel through here, that is literally damage. So an efficient system will find a way to route around it. It's a cancer that you just kind of have to get around. And so the internet is, uh, in a sense, and, and I'm not saying it's a conscious entity, but uh, I'm saying in, a, in an evolutionary sense, it is uh, being put under uh, evolutionary pressure, where a lot of the information that flows wants to flow on the internet cannot flow because it's gotten trapped in the these centralized platforms that are now starting to engage in heavy-handed censorship far beyond the First Amendment and are being run by an unaccountable group of very small algorithm writers and censors who uh, basically just do whatever they want. And I've interacted with these people, and they are nowhere near as high-minded as they pretend to be. Most of them (laughs) are incredibly political. They have clear agendas, and they're acting on them in subtle ways by putting their thumbs in the scale. And they know that nobody will notice because they literally control the means of speech. And you'll have a few misguided lunatics who don't understand network effects and natural monopolies will say, but they're private companies. They can do whatever they want. But of course, if their views were being suppressed, they would sing a different tune immediately because the test of any good system is you hand it over to your enemies and, and you let them run it for a while. And if then you sure. see what the system is all about. And of course, yes. they're not willing to do that. They're in charge, so they'll justify it any which way. In any case, the internet views this censorship <laughs> as damaged, and there's these groups of people who are going to ride around it. Now, luckily, many of the people who rail against censorship who are not happy about it, they're actually the brightest people around. They're the clearest thinkers. And among them was this whoever was Satoshi Nakamoto, and then, of course, Vitalik Buterin, and people like Zuko, and so on. And they have started building the infrastructure to create a censorship-resistant internet. And it starts out with money, because if you can create censorship-resistant money, and money is the most important 
you know, let's put it money is the largest bounty item in the world. Money, to most people, money is the most important thing and they'll do anything to get it. And so, therefore, if you can create a money that cannot be stolen or cannot be hacked or cannot be stopped, if you can create unstoppable money, then you can create unstoppable anything. And so, Bitcoin is the experiment to create unstoppable uh, and, uh, money. And then from that comes Ethereum, which is in the experiment to create unstoppable applications starting with financial mm. applications uh, because those are the only ones that are valuable enough to kind of take on the load of a creaky new expensive technology like blockchains but then over time you're seeing other things are going to start emerging gaming networks social networks and now you're seeing with nfts these title registries for art and music and you know all kinds of uh, representations of physical assets into digital assets so we're, we're basically seeing blockchains i believe are going to wholesale replace gigantic chunks of the internet until 20 years from now it's going to be unfathomable to run an internet without blockchains unfathomable you will not be able to do it it will be like going back from smartphones to flip phones to you know those old bricks or the landlines it'll be ludicrously stupid um, and what will be really interesting to me is first of course you know the transformation of the internet into a true free domain but then secondly will be how totalitarian societies react to this so someone like china who's built the great firewall this entire time they think the threat <laughs> from bitcoin is it's a it's a digital currency so they're creating the chinese digital currency mm -mm, that's not the threat the threat is not. Uh, the threat is that the internet itself becomes an uncensorable free market of encrypted information and data and communications. And if you don't adopt that one, then you're living on an older, broken version of the internet. Um, and maybe, maybe somehow they'll be able to force their poor population that has no choice to go along with it. But they're not going to be able to, in, in, you know, control the rest of the world that way. Um, certainly, any society that I think has a blockchain-enabled internet will be decades ahead of one that doesn't. Yeah, and it will be interesting to see what our uh, our ruling class does about that. I don't know if ruling class is the right word, but these people that we've been yeah, talking they're about, at the elite class. What are they going right. to do about no. that? I mean, they're not going to be happy about it. Um, but at the same time, one of the huge trends with the internet is the internet is destroying institutions and replacing them with individuals and it's doing yeah. that by exposing the illegitimacy and the and how unnecessary all these gatekeepers were like look at all the journalists who are lobbying for twitter and clubhouse to censor because they want to be the censors right look at all the academics who will rail against uh you know crypto because they want to be the ones who are allocating where resources go in modern society so, uh, look at how wall street's going to react to crypto right so you're, you're going to have huge pushback but at the same time, I think in the, the crypto revolution is really interesting because it's individuals first, right? Individuals front-ran institutions. To this day, there are more individuals who are into it than institutions. Individuals are getting these incredible yields and in decentralized finance. Individuals are the ones who are front-running Bitcoin before the big institutions come in later this year. Individual, and, and of course, it's a crazy wild west. I'm not recommending anyone who isn't willing to truly understand at a technical and financial level to get into it. But the, the reason why fortunes are being made in crypto is because it is true wild west. It's unoccupied territory. It's new land. So people are going out there and staking the new land. But it's just as dangerous and just as crazy and just as scammy as the wild west. And institutions don't know how to function in these environments because institutions move through consensus. And only an individual can really seek the truth. And a group has to have consensus. If it doesn't have consensus, it falls apart. It's no longer a group. So a group is what forms after you've figured out how to solve a problem. So you set out to solve a problem. 
Usually it's an individual or two or three who solve the problem, and then they form a group to implement the solution. But groups themselves do not solve problems. And so these groups can keep institutions alive cannot go and create new things. And so they are going to, uh, it's just a question of when, it's not a question of if, um, they're going to get overrun by the internet and we're going to have much more fluid institutions that are formed on demand as needed, uh, but you know, will, uh, but will be based on the individuals and based on merit. So for example, what are you and I doing here? In a pre-internet era, we would have never... You tried Never to be like convincing this. an A&R person or a record label that this is a good idea. <laughs> exactly. But you have – so I get invited uh, by journalists on their <laughs> – Yeah, I get, I get invited by journalists on their podcast where they want to interview me or they want to write about me in the newspaper or they want me on their radio show. Like why do I need an intermediary? We don't need any more intermediaries. We can all go direct. Why do you need a PR firm? Why do you need? What is a journalist? A journalist is someone with a Twitter following. In fact, it's funny to watch a bunch of journalists now reeling against Substack and talking about how Substack is evil. Substack is just choice. It's a choice to go out on your own. And what's what's incredible to me is like all the good journalists are leaving for Substack. If you can't run your own Substack, that means that you're one of the journalists who is being subsidized in the past by the journalists who can run their own Substack. And so what you're going to see is all the good journalists are going to go on a Substack. All the bad ones are going to be left behind. And what we're seeing is a squandering of these incredible brands like the New York Times, and the Washington Post, and Journal, and all these brands. These brands were built up over hundreds of years, and now we're going to spend them hard in the next few years and maybe the next decade where the normal person who can't be bothered isn't paying attention might be like oh yeah new york times new york times and continues to believe it but i think that the next generation will consider these brands to be utterly useless and will instead just subscribe to whichever journalist or whichever person that they feel best represents it's people yeah reality for them exactly it's people i see i'm sure you see this with your children i have an eight-year-old and uh he doesn't have any kind of uh, loyalty or affinity to any corporation or body or magazine or anything. He has individuals. And when those individuals become untrustworthy or, or, or he, f- he falls out of line with them for whatever reason, he finds another one. Yeah, uh, that's, that's, that's that. Yeah, there's also, that's also a reason why people have a hard time wrapping their head around uh, NFTs because that is loyalty to individual artists, right? It's not like, yeah. oh, the institutions say that Leonardo da Vinci is a good artist or the gallery says mm-hmm. it's the new hot modern art person. No, the individuals are basically deciding for themselves and forming a micro community around the artists. And it's up to the artist to be full stack, to engage, to market, to uh, serve and to help and to create. Um, but now these direct relationships don't require any intermediation. They don't require any institutions in the way. Now, the bad news is that how are these individuals connecting with each other? Well, they're connecting with each other through these massive platforms. So instead of having you know, 20 gatekeepers, uh, 20 uh, old world offline gatekeepers, we have one online gatekeeper. But exactly. even there, I think... But even and, and those gatekeepers themselves are have become very comfortable with the use of power. Like Andrew Chen just joined; he's a, <laughs> on the board of uh, Clubhouse and invested in it. So, uh, so this is a good time to smash Clubhouse, <laughs> right? Which is Clubhouse <laughs> is, is the latest example of these kinds of gatekeepers, <laughs> uh, which is 
great. It enables us in so many levels. But one of the big problems I have with Clubhouse is that they're also engaging in moderation and censorship. And right now it's light-handed, but you can bet as they become more and more powerful, it'll become more and more heavy-handed, which is why I, you know, I, I, I look forward to trying other platforms if, if Clubhouse even you know, continues down the moderation and censorship path. Moderation is just a nice way of saying we just block whatever we don't like. And you can see mm-hmm. how it got really out of control on Twitter and Facebook in the last few years when the masks came off. And so I just think that any <laughs> ability to censor is the problem. Ultimately, like Google used to say, don't be evil. And they took that away because that, you know, it just, it's just too tempting. Even if the founders believe that, the founders eventually don't end up running the company. Well, it's like uh, you were talking about earlier. You have a couple of people, some individuals will create something. And then in will come a big group. And then the group will start making these big group sort of decisions and, and move in that fashion. And, and the thing will usually be destroyed. Yeah, the group will operate through consensus. The consensus will be set by the most intolerant minority. So you'll have an intolerant minority within the group who will control the group and then use it to consensus and groupthink. But it also sows the seeds of its own destruction down the line because then they get fat and happy and they're like, great, now we're all set, we we run the world. But you've lost all the creators, you've lost all the innovators. The the one brilliant engineer who could think for themselves kind of slinked out the back door because they want to have nothing to do with this. And then they're going to go create the, the next crypto-based clubhouse or the next crypto-based Twitter that is going to eventually just steamroll the existing social networks. Yeah, even in a situation, because I, I, I think about this stuff and you go, you like, say, the way Disney operates these days. You're like, why are they doing these things when it's definitely not making the money and it's definitely losing the money? And you go, well, there's no competition. They have no uh, real uh, impetus to have to operate in that fashion uh, anymore. But as you were saying, once you get to the point where like literally no one of any worth at all will work there when no one's paying attention to the thing. And meanwhile, someone's set up shop next door and they've built this new way of communicating and this new way of telling stories uh, that's impervious. Yeah, someone like Disney is is relying upon brand and distribution, and that's getting weaker and weaker by the day because dis, dis, distribution is no no longer through their movie theaters and and you know their shelf space. It's through Netflix and it's through uh, Which, any old yeah. website. So anyone can stream yes. to a TV now. Exactly. Assuming, is Clubhouse so, so, can you stream Clubhouse to a TV? Of course you can. So we are now competing yeah, with yeah. Disney Plus right now. <laughs> exactly. Uh, or, and at least we're competing for the time and the attention. But yeah. the, the modern platforms uh, rely on a much more insidious thing, which is they rely upon network effects. And network effects in an olden day mm. w- you know, used to form slowly over time. And people realized, like, okay, it only makes sense to run one fiber cable you know, into the neighborhood because the moment a competitor shows up, you, you, the incumbent can just drop prices because they have a sunk cost. They can provide for free, drive the competitor out of business and go back to raising prices. So these monopolists uh, naturally form as utilities in power and electricity and telephone. And so we have to regulate them as such. So they have to become common carriers. And utilities are common carriers and they're forced to carry all content because it's too much power to leave up to a private corporation. In fact, in Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash book, the guy who kind of takes over the world, it's a, it's, it's a futuristic book, uh, really good sci-fi thriller um the guy who takes over the world is actually uh the billionaire or the multi-billionaire who basically lays all the fiber cable to everybody's homes he's unregulated so he controls all the information going into your home (laughs) and in that book he's a christian fanatic but it turns out to be the exact opposite right it turns out that the the cable layers are regulated as common carriers but now you have these social networks built on top that are not regulated as utilities or as common carriers because they move too fast and it happened too quickly and people didn't realize that they'd seized the means of information dissemination 
And so now <laughs> they've taken over the cables and the multi-billionaires who run this are the Zucks and the Jacks of the world and maybe, you know, Paul Davison eventually. Uh, and nobody gets to tell them what to do. Um, it's, it's unfortunate, but we found ourselves in a different dystopian hell than the one he, uh, he laid out. But it's actually, uh, you know, similar. It's virtual cables rather than physical cables. Yes. Yes. And here we are. Uh, but how long, how long can that last, realistically? I mean, it can last for a while, unfortunately. I don't, I don't think these things happen that quickly. There's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be built. The network effects are incredibly powerful. It's very, very hard to switch, right? In that sense, like uh, the, the strongest network effect is probably in Twitter and Facebook, where you have these type social graphs. Twitter is probably the strongest because it's a, it's a cross, uh, it's a cross-person social lab, right? It's a, sorry, it's a social a graph. It's it, it, it cross friendship. So in, in Facebook, it's just your friend circle. So in theory, the people that are the most important to you on Facebook, you know them in real life. So you can move to a, another place and take them with you. In Twitter, you don't even know who the heck your followers are. You have no idea and you have no way to find them in the future uh, if you were to move. It's not like Twitter is giving you their email address. When they cancel you, they intend to punish you. If Twitter mm. didn't want to punish you, they would export their graph and you know maybe you have an email address or a newsletter or something where people could subscribe to you and follow you another way. But Twitter intends to punish you. They're vindictive. And so they, you know, so, so you, unfortunately, the social graph portability doesn't exist. And so you get locked into these social networks. And Twitter has probably the most powerful network effect. I think Clubhouse is a little bit weaker, especially, there's two kinds of Clubhouse. Clubhouse is actually multiple apps running in one or multiple networks. And one of those is we're here to socialize like a cocktail party. And that has a very powerful network effect because that's just based on, uh, you know, critical mass and demographics and so on. So once people are in one network, you just want to go where the best cocktail party is you want to go where the best conversations are so you just show up to that one but there's a different effect on uh on, on clubhouse which is you're going there to listen to the per a specific person that you're really interested in and so you're coming there to listen to me or to you and so when we tweet out people show up based on where we are so if i did this talk on twitter spaces i expect to probably have just as many people right they just have to download an app and they're interested in listening to me and there they are so clubhouse doesn't really have a lock on people like us um, who are kind of the you know larger creators with their own independent followings? Unfortunately, where we are, where our, our hands are tied are on Twitter because Twitter is where we spread the information. So in that sense, Twitter is kind of the crown jewel of the social networks because it has the most unreplicatable one-way follow graph um, that can be used as a broadcast media to alert people to anything else. So the fact that Twitter has become so censorious uh, and uh, so kind of controlled. Uh, by whatever they call their internal trust and safety team is awful. It's really bad. But I hope that some blockchain-based alternatives will be emerging. There are already one or two out there, and there's going to be a bunch more. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and one of the things that blockchains are really good at is solving the critical mass problem, at breaking network effects. It's, so this, is, this, to me, is the Goliath, David versus Goliath fight of the 21st century, which is can a blockchain-based social network using the power of incentives and open programmability and, and permission. So, so there's four things a blockchain-based social network brings to the fight um, that, are, that are unique, right? If you look on one hand, there's Goliath, which is a Twitter or a Facebook, where they seem like mm -hmm. they have unlimited resources, they have massive network effect, huge amounts of content. How are you ever going to get people off of it? But if you flip the other side, what, you know, what David has, David has four little weapons. Uh, David has payments built in. Uh, 
which are uh, so you can like, build in money and money is a very powerful incentive we see our tokens and blockchains are kind of drive people nuts almost especially and early adopters get rewarded so now you have a social network where the early adopters if they're right if they pick the winning social network of the future correctly they become millionaires right well, that's, that's a very trick, powerful incentive for yeah that is a huge trick so payments are a big deal the second piece is permanence you know you can't get canceled so now you can rest at least a lot more assured that every follower you collect will be your follower forever, right? That's to the extent that you keep them interested and engaged, of course, but mm. you're not going to lose them. Um, <clears throat> a third one is you get permissionless programmability. And don't underestimate this at all. This isn't just APIs. This is completely open source because the data is protected inside the blockchain through private keys by each user. The the network itself uh, you know, can be completely open. The source code can be out there. So people can <clears throat> take these blockchain-based social networks and start doing remixes on them. And that's why you and I are here, because you remix my content. But now these are coders, engineers, designers remixing each other's content, and they're going to create incredible clients. And then finally, there's peer governance, which is to the extent that there is any governance in these networks, which will be, I think, much lower than there is in something like Twitter, uh, it'll be done at a peer level. So for example, today on Twitter, there's only one editor, right? Think of Twitter as like a giant newspaper where there are lots and lots of writers and there's lots and lots of readers, but there's only one editor and that editor is Twitter, right? Mm. Um, so that editor is a very heavy handed boss. Usually most of the times ignoring everything, can't do anything. And then once in a blue moon will swoop down and just smash somebody. Whereas if you look at a, a blockchain based social network, they will have a distributed hierarchy of editors. You can literally choose which editor that you want to follow and based on their mutant block lists and the mutant block lists of the people that they subscribe to, you will get your own customized Twitter. So I think the, the, these four different pieces, peer governance, permissionless programmability, payments, and permanence are what are going to be the, the real weapons that blockchain-based social networks bring to the fight. And I think it'll be really interesting because just as Bitcoin is showing that if you can create unstoppable money, then you can create unstoppable anything digital. <laughs> the same way I think that the blockchain-based social networks will show if you can break Twitter's network effect, then you can break any digital network effect. Yeah. Yeah, and that applies to everything. I've been saying this in the beginning. Everything that happens in the music industry will happen everywhere else. The music industry, their fatal mistake, people wanted to get music quickly, and they stopped them. They stopped, they got, you couldn't legally download an MP3. Uh, so Napster had to exist. Uh, which then created the foundation for all manner of things that occurred after occurred after that. And then once eventually the record label said, okay, Sp okay, Spotify, you can exist, but you have to give us a huge amount of shares and this, that, and the other. Uh, what came into being was the culture of curators, because there was suddenly so much, so much music flowing in. You, it was the culture of curators, it was playlists. And then suddenly a random kid uh, on the other side of the world who's just got really good taste uh, becomes one of the most powerful people in the music industry because he's got good taste and he's got a cool playlist. And that playlist yeah, is now pushing all those streams. And I, and I don't even think we're done on the music industry disruption yet, right? We're just getting started. Oh, no. There's, of course, the whole NF yeah, there's the whole NFT thing, but there's also, yeah. keep in mind that, that Spotify and uh, and these kind of controlled streaming music players, they're to some extent controlled by the proprietary device operating systems that we're running. So we're you know, talking here on iPhone, 
and your only other alternative is Android. Well, how come BitTorrent or Napster or something like that doesn't come back from the dead and just crush Spotify? It should just be a free version that's going to have everything, right? And the reason is because yep. the app stores won't let it on. So there will be there. Will, so this yep. this is the one that I don't have a solution to. I do believe that unfortunately the way mobile phones are designed, they're such difficult pieces of hardware to build and manufacture and ship at scale, and they cost money. So I think here people kind of give up their freedom very easily. And then once most people in your network have given up the freedom easily, then you're using some weird open phone that can run any app. But most of your friends and family are running phones that are still very tightly controlled. So ultimately, the, the ultimate monopolists are Apple and Google. And, you know, whatever they say goes. So even if someone were to, for example, you know, for, even if someone were to say, hey, I have a good social network and I'm shipping the app and it's going to be uncensored or, or at least you get to choose your own editors and you get to block out whoever you think is putting up bad content um, or let's call it peer governed as opposed to top down governed or corporate governed. Uh, unfortunately, Apple and Google will just block it, as we've seen them already start doing. So they are the yeah. monopolists. And, and in my opinion, the trust and safety divisions and the moderators and the censors at Apple and Google are probably the biggest threats to a free society. Yeah, so what do we do about them? I don't know. One problem at a time, <laughs> please. <laughs> I know, it seems we were getting through pretty much everything in, uh, in uh, you know, record time, I thought. Um, <laughs> yeah, might as well go for it. Yeah, why not? Fix the, fix the world uh, with Naval on Clubhouse. Uh, I think I'm I'm optimistic uh, in a in a practical fashion. That was another one of one of one of the reasons I think a lot of people like your uh, work is that uh, you're you're a realist and you're very very practical. Um, whilst whilst being somewhat optimistic compared to a lot of people in the in the contemporary space. Yeah, the other day I tweeted out a very simple three words just because it was the mood I was in. I <laughs> literally just, this is, you know, like a teenage girl, I just tweeted my mood. Um, but it was optimi <laughs> optimistic, grateful, and truthful. Yeah. Pium, pium. Just what, yeah, when those three intersect, just feel really yeah. good. Everything feels right. Yeah, that's it. That's the foundation. Uh, that I always say that, the, the foundation. People are like, Kira the Don, how do you manage to do so much stuff? Why are you so happy all 